This podcast is produced for the Book Love Foundation in partnership with the Teacher Learning Sessions, connecting teachers with ideas, experts, and each other. I've always been the agitator, and so to have a publisher take a chance on, on my ideas was a really big thing. Welcome to the Book Love Foundation podcast. I'm Penny Kittle and I'm your host back for season three. We took a year off there. You might have noticed I was working on a book with Kelly Gallagher. Took up just about every last minute I had. And now that it's done, we're back with an exciting season ahead, starting off with this two-part interview with Cornelius Minor. No doubt you know Cornelius Minor. He is sweet and kind and filled with a love of teaching and kids. He's dedicated to the work that we're all trying to do in our classrooms to engage every student in a path in literacy that will inspire them their whole lives. He's in his third decade of teaching. Imagine that, he looks like he's 25, but he's also here today to talk not only about his book, but about some of the challenges that we all feel in making our ideals come into our practice. Just tell us about you, Cornelius. Okay. Well, like, um, Penny, I'm a really simple guy. I think, um, and I think that's the beauty of teaching is that fundamentally we're all people who love children and are drawn to this work because we love children in numbers or we love children in stories. Um, and I'm that guy, you know, I, um, I've been teaching, I'm entering my like third decade as a teacher, which is crazy. Um, (laughs) I can't believe that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I went to Florida A&M University and I graduated um, a year early. So I graduated when I was 21. Um, and um, so I started teaching at 21, which was way too young to have my own classroom. But that's a whole nother podcast. Um, oh, and... <laughs> I did too, Cornelius. We could have like a mistakes podcast. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, but I'm, I'm a Brooklyn teacher with all of the, the love and power and complexity that comes with being that. Um, like many New Yorkers, um, New York is my home, but it is not my point of origin. I'm originally Liberian. So um, I grew up in a very, very West African household. Um, and my, my parents, um, well, I just, for folks who are listening who don't know a ton about Liberia, Liberia is a, a small country on the coast of West Africa. So we are lots of beautiful beaches. The best surfing in the world um, is in Liberia. And I grew up a, a typical Liberian kid. So I went to school every day, read lots of stories, chilled out with my grandma. Um, my grandma was one of the, the chief educators in our town. So I come from a family of, of educators that if you um, meet a Liberian on the street and ask them about where they went to school, nine times out of 10, they'll know my grandma. And so that's like really um, an exciting legacy that I get to hold. Um, but, you know, raised by immigrant parents um, in um, Atlanta and New York, um, and and really just spend a lot of time like thinking about books, thinking about kids, hanging out with families. Um, it's uh, interesting. I guess if there were a story arc, um, the story arc of who is Cornelius, it would be a repeating story. It'd be sequel after sequel after sequel because it's learn something new, try it, fail horribly at it, then try it again. Is <laughs> <laughs> kind of the story of my life. And so um, I have been um, an advocate for communities ever since I was kid. Um, so much of the work that comes through in my professional development and in my um, scholarship is work that I've been doing my entire life. You know, so 
you know, I think equity is a relatively new conversation that people are having in, in education, but it's been a conversation that folks in my household have been having for generations. Um, you know, I, you know, have been involved with like community groups and community movements ever since I was a teenager. So I, you know, spent the night in the governor's office because he wouldn't listen to me when I was 19. And I, you know, like wow. I've done, you know, I've worked um, organizing small groups of parents, um, you know, or small groups of workers. And so I've been in organizing work for a long time. And so it's really cool to be having this moment in education right now because people are like, oh, wow, Cornelius is like brand new. And I'm like, oh, no, been around the block for a few times. But yeah, yeah. but yeah. your message is really being heard, I guess, a little differently. Yeah, yeah. You know, are ready. Exactly. And I think that's a really interesting thing, like um, positioning. It's, it's what I've been learning lots about is just like how to position a message in ways that people can hear it, but then also act on it. And I think that that's what I've really been obsessed with later. It's not just do you hear me, but like how have you changed your practice, your being in the world to actually act on the things that you hear from me? Yeah, so, which is part of what's behind your book, right? Yeah, it's a yeah. really action-oriented book. One other thing before we leave, like who you are, um, I didn't know you grew up surfing, but uh, you mentioned skateboarding. Talk to me about that. How is that still part of your life? Skateboarding is probably, um, next to my family, is the most important thing in my life. Like every great discovery that I have made in my life has come through the lens of skateboarding. Um, and, and what's powerful is even when I'm facing hard times, you know, here's the thing about skateboarding, that like um, gravity comes for all of us, you know, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, but like 9.8 meters per second squared it's gonna get you, like gravity comes for everyone. And there's something about skateboarding or through the alchemy of you know, body positioning and, you know, and movement, you're able to defy gravity for interludes of time. You know? and, and so you're doing the impossible for seconds at a time. And to me, that is amazing, that to be able to fly when the earth doesn't want you to uh -huh. um, is, is, is something that I learned early on as a kid learning how to skateboard. But then I took that understanding into everything where I would face challenges and I'm like, wait, I can fly. So I can do this. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> you know, and, um, and when I came to teaching, it was one of the first things I wanted to do. I, I coached a skateboard team um, for many, many years at the Brooklyn School for Global Studies and we would go all over the town to skate. Um, and, and there's nothing more beautiful than teaching New York City kids how to skate with, with the beautiful urban landscape that is New York City. Um, but one of the things that became very true for my students even was, yeah, this idea that if I can teach you how to skate, algebra is a piece of cake. Or if I can teach you how to skate, like you can read these 40 books. Like the, the, this thing should be impossible to you. You should not be able to fly. You should not be able to use wood to leave the earth, but you can. And so any other thing is cake. You know, and so for me, skateboarding is very important. I, I've reached the point in life where I don't recover as fast as I used to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, um, so I used to get banged up and be able to sleep it off. And now I get banged up and I limp around for a week. So <laughs> do your daughter um, skateboard? Um, they're learning how. Um, and here's a funny thing. I think every kid should do it. It's one of those things. And it's and it's painful, you know, that that the learning curve in skateboarding involves blood. So you give blood to your mastery. And yeah. I think that there's something about the discipline associated with sacrificing wow. your own blood in pursuit of mastery. Um, and, um, and it's, you can never be too proud of yourself when you skateboard, you know, because like everybody that you see, so if you watch some pros,
and you see them do some amazing thing, you know that that guy spent hours with his face on the ground. Uh -huh. And so that's, that's a bit of a unifying thing. So if you meet like the best pro in the world, you're like, you know what, that guy is the same as me because just like I had my face on the ground last Tuesday, in order for him to do that, he spent significant amounts of time with his face on the ground. And so there's this unifying thing where um, I think in places like teaching, especially with what I've been doing recently, you know, we tend to deify specific people or we deify like certain personalities where we're like, oh, you know, that's Penny. I could never be like Penny or, oh, that's, you know, this Cornelius. person. I could never, <laughs> yeah, I could never be like that person. And, um, and in skateboarding, it's like you see somebody who is godlike and you're like, but I am like that person because that person spent a lot of time on the ground and I spend a lot of time on the ground. So there's this unity to it um, that's really, really powerful that the distance between me and a pro is not that far um, oh. and and I really love so that. I think you would like snowboarding which is the big thing in my town because the ground is softer but they have all the ramps and all the things that you're doing all over the mountain by my house so you're gonna have I to come have up told here this. yeah I've been told this but yeah but I, I spent some time surfing I'm I, I spend a lot of time skateboarding and so yeah so snowboarding might be my new thing so the next podcast might be snowboarding with Penny and Cornelius oh yes Hello, this is Kevin Carlson from the Teacher Learning Sessions. This episode of the Book Love Foundation podcast is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com slash booklovepodcast and browse for a title that interests you. Download it for free and start listening. It's that easy. When you sign up for a 30-day trial, you can select any book of your choice for free, but you might want to consider Green, a novel, by Sam Graham Felsen, which explores an interracial friendship between two adolescent boys in 1992 Boston. Penny recently spoke with Sam about the book for an upcoming episode of this very podcast, and Green just won a 2019 Alex Award from ALA for one of the best books written for adults that has special appeal to a teenage audience. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash booklovepodcast. Now, back to Penny's conversation with Cornelius Minor. The second thing I want to talk about um, is, of course, we got this. And what I want you to think about with me First is Don Graves years ago told me that before you write a book, you should write the blurb for the back because mm -hmm. you really should know in like tweet length, like he wasn't around for Twitter, but what is the big idea here? Um, and what's funny that you bring up Don and I never met Don Graves, but, um, but I have fallen in love with him over my career. I, I can proudly say and I, I hounded all of the people at Heinemann to help me to accomplish this. I can probably say I've read every book that he did. Um, what? <laughs> yeah, like, um, you I know, love and, you even more. Wow. Yeah, I liked it. Um, but it was something that I wanted to do. You know, I grew up with Lucy, you know, so I grew up with Lucy Calkins, and she, in every way, has been an incredible mentor to me. Yes. And and people joke around, and they're like, oh, that's your mom. And and so so I guess if Lucy is my mom, Don is my granddad. Exactly. Um, and, yeah. and he's my granddad that I never met. So I inherited this incredible legacy from this man. And so I became obsessed with him. And, and my favorite words that he uttered was in his speech, which became the essay, The Enemy is Orthodoxy. Yeah. Um, this idea that, that the things that, that are radical and new and fresh become this orthodoxy that impairs our progress forward. And, um, 
And so that was really the organizing principle for the book. When I read Don's words that the enemy is orthodoxy, I began to look around me and I've always had this sense um, that, that, that things were not okay. And I've always acted on that, you know, that all of my activism has been about that. All of my parent engagement has been about that. All of my community organizing has been about that. Um, but then I wanted to put those things into words, you know, and, and I think it took a while, you know, that, that I've always been the agitator. And so to have a publisher take a chance on, on my ideas was a really big thing. But yeah, the idea that we in education are trapped by the things that have become habit. Yeah. And I wanted to write a book that destroys habit, particularly the habits that marginalize kids. I loved how you said that we have to disrupt the things that are in education. We can't just recognize they're there. We have to begin to change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and that's who I've always been. You know, I've always been the kid that wanted to kind of take the thing apart that wasn't working. Yeah. You know, and um, and and. And I was that teacher, you know, and I was fortunate to work for a principal who valued that in me yeah. and, and encouraged that in me. And then when I went to, you know, TC to work with Lucy, that was the thing that she championed. She was just like, wow, like you are getting really good at going into schools, identifying the things that aren't working and then dismantling those things. And so, so I wanted to capture that in a book or how can I put a manual in people's hands that disrupts things? And so when I think about We Got This, it's a disruption manual. It is, but you know what you do really, really well that I'd never had managed to do in my work is that you say, okay, so we know we don't want to teach the curriculum written for some other class in our room, but you mm -hmm. talk about how to ease your way into an understanding of how it works or doesn't work. Like yeah. keep really good records, teach it for five days, teach it for 10 days, and, and really pay attention to what's happening with your kids. And I yeah. think what you did is provide this ramp to letting go of the curriculum but grounding the letting go in really good teacher practice which is kid watching which is yeah. centered on how are the systems i'm setting up based on this curriculum exactly getting in the way or really advancing what kids can do exactly but much of that work has been handed to me by my forebears you know that that that's don's work it is you know that's that's you know, I have an, a grandmother who taught for years in Liberia, and that was her work. You know, how do I watch kids? How do I watch a community and create the kind of experience for them that will help them to grow into the kinds of people who can eventually sustain this community? And that's all I want to do. You know, I think one of the great challenges of modernity is that we've attempted to mass produce education. So this whole business of localized kid watching has become corporate sponsored curriculum. And, um, and, and I'm just not for that. I think that putting power back in the hands of teachers, putting power back, you know, in our eyes, in our consciousness, in our thoughts, that's really, really important, you know, that, that we collect data and then we act on what we collect. And so I really wanted to create a paradigm where teachers could practice that because that's a skill set. It's not a thing yes. that you just learn and do. It's a thing that we, we have to learn and master over time. So. Yeah. You know, I have to say, Don would have loved, loved you. He would have invited you on his deck and Betty would have brought you graham crackers and tea and he would have read you poetry and read your work um, because your spirit is very much like his. And one of the things that I've noticed as somebody who's now seen you present many times mm -hmm. is one of Don's superpowers was to walk into an enormous room of people and own the entire room, like send his energy out to everyone there and say, we are all in this together which uh -huh. I've seen you do. I saw you do that at ILA with this enormous room. <laughs> and I was way, way in the back of the dark going, wow, Cornelius, you are killing it. Oh, it was, it was yeah. thrilling. But I have to ask you, because this was such, I, I like stopped when I was reading your book, when I read the scene in the elevator on your way uh -huh. the, that morning, 
yeah. how that must have felt to you as the person that you are, the work that you've done. Can you talk, can you just like summarize a little bit about what that was? You know, and, and the tragic part about that scene in the elevator is that it happens once a month or, you know, it's, it's not a thing that happened and doesn't, you know, that, that gosh, even last month, three days before the holiday, you know, <laughs> so, you know, that, that this is a thing that, I think about all the time, and and to describe the scene for those of you who haven't read the book, um, yeah, I was on my way to my very very first big talk ever in life, um, and with all the nerves and and anxiety that come with having you know your very first big talk, and and I remember there are several things that I know as a skateboarder. One of the things that I know is if I'm nervous, I exercise before, and I can usually get it out. And so I was on my way to go exercise. Um, my speech was. Um, right before noon and and so I was like okay I've got a couple of hours to like run around town and just really kind of get it all out and yeah and I run into this woman who um, and I was so nervous on the elevator and 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 she was holding the conference program with my face on the front and I was just like yes this is the sign from the gods that this is where I'm supposed to be and I was so excited to see her that I kind of like jumped over to her in the elevator and I was like that's me on the cover of your book I'm so excited that you're here and she totally read that in a different way um, and and just pretty much attacked me and then ran off the elevator. Um, and yeah, and it kind of killed the spirit. It ruined the day, you know. Um, but you know, but that's what racism does. That's what sexism yeah. does. That's what ableism does is it's not the personal meanness that concerns me. It's that it takes your energy. And so my entire workday was robbed from me by this woman um, and, and the great irony of it, you know, and, I, and you always try to be the big person, but the great irony of it was then she ran off that elevator, crossed the street and paid $500 to hear me speak, you know, right. <laughs> you know, like, and that was the great irony of the situation. And just that complexity, knowing that like the concept of me on an elevator standing next to you is unsafe, yet you'll pay $500 to sit in an audience to hear me talk, um, you know, and, and so just that, and what does that mean for the kids that this woman teaches that, right. that that you can have these ideas about who black people are or about who disabled people are or about who transgender people are. And you can have these ideas about how inclusive you are, but then once you're actually on the elevator with that person, it becomes a very, very different thing. And so I began to really ask the question, well, what happens when you're in the classroom with these people or what happens when you're visiting their homes or talking to their parents? Um, and it scares me really that, that so many kids are in classrooms with people who have dangerous amounts of unconscious bias. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And I, you know, I, this summer I did a, um, a workshop with teachers in Detroit. I go back there all the time because we live just outside yeah. of there for years. And this year we studied Andrea Davis Pinckney, who's, you know, brilliant. Yeah. Oh, I love She's... her writing and Rhythm Ride, the story of Motown was our central text, which Scholastic mm -hmm. generously donated all these copies. And at one point in the workshop we were reading and these, women who probably have been teaching 45 years mm -hmm. called me over and they said, you know, do people still teach To Kill a Mockingbird? These were elementary teachers. Wow. And I said, yeah. And they said, I wonder if when you talk to people, you'd tell them that that book still traumatizes me. Yeah. And I was like, I will tell them that. Can you tell yeah. me why? And they said, because, and they gave all the reasons that we've heard, but when you hear it from someone with the yeah. quaky voice of, I sat in that classroom and watched the only black character in um, handcuffs and in uh, yeah. a position of no power 
um, where no one right. listened to him, and the only hero in the story was white. And, and they yeah. just, I'm not giving them nearly the, the depth of what yeah. they had to say to me that day, but the, the thing that struck me was that we just haven't been listening because yeah. we have known things for so long. Yeah. And, and yeah. I think sometimes what people think we're proposing is radical is something that maybe would have been radical 15, 25, 50 years ago, but now it's yeah. like, how, how are we still here? How yeah. is that happening well, in the elevator? Well, again, it's that idea of orthodoxy and that I will move through the world in the same ways that I've always had because it's convenient. You know, and, and I think one of the cool parts about being me is I have conversations with people and I get to talk to people. And, um, and, and people talk about the convenience of, of status quo. You know, I, um, there's yes. a teacher who I love, who I am working with, and I'm really struggling with her because this is a woman who, like, I know her own children and, um, you know, and we've talked together for years. And we are actually, I'm in District 15 in New York City, and we are undergoing a desegregation plan right now. So next year, um, we are, we have an articulated plan to desegregate middle schools. And so it goes into effect next year. And there are parents who are on record in opposition to this plan. Like, so in 2019, there are parents who feel like it's safe enough to stand up at city council meetings in New York City, Brooklyn, USA, and talk about their opposition to diversifying schools for children. Um, Like, this is a real thing. And that there are teachers who are on that side. So there are teachers who have been advocating for why we don't need to execute this plan. And those teachers are on record. Um, You know, and this is my neighborhood. So this is not, you know, this is not, you know a town where Atticus and Scout live. This is not, you know, this is New York City, Brooklyn, New York, 2019. And, um, and I was talking to a teacher about it. Um, and she just kind of confessed to me. She was like, I don't know about these, this desegregation plan. She's like, I'm pretty comfortable where I am. I'm comfortable teaching the kids that I teach. You know, when they desegregate the schools, we're going to get all kinds of kids and I'm going to have to change my practice to be more inclusive. And that's going to take work. And I'm a busy mom and I don't want to do that work. And so I'm like, are you sitting here telling me that you're okay with systemic racism because it's going to make you work harder? But a lot of people are, you know, and this is my friend. This is a woman that I love. This is not my enemy. This is not a person I am like advocating against. This is like my neighbor. And so like, so when neighbors are having these conversations and when neighbors are choosing to actively invest in systems that are racist, that are sexist, that are ableist, you know, because it's convenient for their lives we've got a lot of thinking to do in America, you know? Um, and so, you know, at one point we were able to demonize or kind of vilify all the, all the open racist or all the open, you know, people who held ill will toward women or toward like, you know, immigrants. But now it's the people who kind of casually invest in these systems because it makes their lives easier. Um, and, and actually the project that I'm working on now is about that, where I am really framing um, kind of, racism 2.0 or sexism 2.0 or ableism 2.0 that it is not the person in the clan hood it's that nice old lady sitting next to you or it's that nice young teacher sitting next to you who is resisting you know what is good for kids because it might not be good for you know her social life or it might not be good for you know her kids at home you know and so it's it's really it's tricky you know it's really tricky i was doing a workshop with a big room of people, and a, I heard a teacher say to another teacher, listen, if you're not white, Christian, and heterosexual, y- you aren't going to make it in my town. And I stopped, yeah. and I came back to their table, and I said, like, could you just help me understand what it is huh. you're talking about when you said this? So and true. she said, yeah. um, listen, I'm, I'm in a super conservative town. My board would be all over me, you know, the books I choose. The I said, okay, before you finish, 
are there kids in your class that aren't white, Christian, and heterosexual? Mm-hmm. And she said, yeah. And I said, and, and, and what, do we, what does that say to them? What does mm-hmm. that say that they're not here? They're not you know, mm-hmm. present. And the fact that it was very much what you said, like we got too comfortable saying, I don't want to disrupt what I'm doing. And for me, yeah. this is, you know, mine was grounded in, in class. I was the poor yeah. kid. I was always yeah. advocating and I just didn't see race as mm. important as it was. I moved mm. to Detroit with my husband and was in the schools day after wow. day. And I was walking from schools with, you know, incredible cathedral-like ceilings in their libraries wow. to absolute disasters in the Detroit yeah. public schools. And I was like, this cannot be America. This cannot both yeah. be public schools in the same state. And I yeah. think that it was an awakening that I didn't know what to do with. And this yeah, is one thing I love in your book. You said, the hard part of knowing that oppression lives in systems, too, is understanding that systems don't change just because we identify them. They change because we disrupt them. This is a choice. Change yeah. is intentional. Allowing the system to run as it always has is also a choice, one that denies many students access to the opportunities that we have pledged our careers to creating. You know, yeah. that's powerful. It, you know, keeping the status quo is a choice that denies opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I um I taught in a school. Um, two things happened. Two years ago, um, it was the first week of school, and so it was right after um the the high holidays, where um the water stopped working in the building, and um and it was a really fascinating moment because that meant no bathrooms, no water fountains, the cafeteria couldn't really produce food um, that was clean and rinsed because there was no water in the building. And so um, we had to suspend school for three days while they fixed the plumbing. And so every other kid in New York City got to go to school except for ours. Um, and, and, and we tried to get the kids in the building, but then we're like, okay, we're using hand sanitizer and not water. Um, and, and I remember thinking and not wanting to say that this would never happen in a building full of white kids. Um, and, and at the same time, one of my colleagues said, you know what would be great right now if we had white parents who had kids in the school because all of our parents are calling City Hall right now and this is not going to change for days. But if we had one white person that calls City Hall right now, like shit would be different. And um, and and you know and there was like a sad truth to that where, you know that that again here we are and we're not talking Selma here. This is like right. New York City where you know this is three years ago. Um, and yeah, just that, that in cities like Detroit and cities like New York and, in, you know, in, in states like Iowa in states like, you know, Indiana, that like these things can happen to kids that we have decided are disposable. Right. Um, and, um, and I think that really, you know, that's the thing that keeps me up at night. You know, people say like, you know, corn, what keeps you going? And it's just like that, that in this country, we've decided that certain folks are disposable and, and, and you can tell by, you know, one of the very first, I did a photo essay my first year teaching, I think. Um, I, I started out in the Bronx, and um, and, and the photo essay was, and, and I, I'm a skateboard coach, and so part of my job is taking kids and going to different schools to compete. And, um, and I remember my team, we left our school, and we went to go compete in this other school. And again, like you described, like cathedral ceilings and natural light and all this. And their locker room was like state-of-the-art locker room. And I remember the kids just asking me, they're like, yo, why is our school like it is? And why is this school like it is? And I'm like, y'all know the answer to that. And and so that my sixth graders 
know that, well, this school is nice because white kids go here and this school, you know, and, and so, you know, and so that's bothered me forever that, you know, and then kids have to live with that anger. So, so right. here's, you know, what, you know, here is what classism and racism and sexism have done to us that you got to compete on the same playing field after walking through their palatial school and being completely demoralized by that. Now right. you got to go compete and now you got to like be your best, you know, and, um, so when I when I think about all that we got this is when I think about all of my work right now like that's that's the thing. An important understanding from we got this we often say kids can't do something. Cornelia says can't is a temporary condition defined by things that we the teachers have not made opportunities for them to practice yet. He says allowing the system to run as it always has is a choice that denies many students access to opportunities that we have pledged our careers to create. I love the idea when he says to identify subgroups that are consistently benefiting less from our practices, from the way things are. Because he says anytime an operating system like a school or a curriculum consistently fails a specific subset of people, there's not something wrong with the people. There's something wrong with the system, the institution, or the curriculum. This episode is the first part of Penny's conversation with Cornelius. The rest of it is in our next episode, which comes out in two weeks. Coming in part two. We in education are trapped by the things that have become habit. And I wanted to write a book that destroys habit, particularly the habits that marginalize kids. That's next time on the Book Love Foundation podcast. I'm Kevin Carlson. Thanks for listening. The Book Love Foundation podcast is produced for the Book Love Foundation in partnership with the Teacher Learning Sessions, connecting teachers with ideas, experts, and each other.